You are listening to Odyssey, the podcast, history's other most awesome epic. This is episode number five in the series. Today's episode is titled Odysseus in the Underworld. So welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is episode number five of Odyssey, the podcast. I have chosen to title this particular episode, Odysseus in the Underworld. So let's just pick up a story with a quick reminder of where we were at the end of episode number four. As you will recall, our hero, our boy Odysseus, is intent on making it back home to Ithaca to his lovely wife Penelope to his young son Telemachus as quickly as possible. And as he has set off on his heroic quest, he has met a whole series of monsters and vanquished those monsters in one way or another. And then, of course, he had landed on the island of Circe, the Temptress. And there our boy Odysseus, after managing to turn Circe, the Temptress, from a bad Temptress into a good Temptress, Well, Odysseus had decided to settle down for a year-long sabbatical come, well, sex vacation, if you will, inside of Circe's gorgeous bed. But eventually, after the year, Odysseus's crew, not getting the side benefits of Circe's gorgeous bed, had had enough and turned to Odysseus and reminded him that, you know, Odysseus, you do have a wife, you do have a kid, and that aside, you do have the kingdom of Ithaca, we might be wanting to get home now soon. So Odysseus had reluctantly spent one final night in the tender charm embraces of Circe, the now good temptress, and then Odysseus and his men had headed out to sea. Now on that final night, Circe had provided Odysseus with some rather bracing information on the steps that were necessary for Odysseus, the hero, before he could possibly make it home. And I think I told you at the end of the previous podcast that when Odysseus shared that information with the crew, well, the crew broke into sobbing, tearing of hair, weeping, and groaning. The the information shared by Circe was just so devastating and frightening. And here's what Circe had told Odysseus. Circe had informed Odysseus that for Odysseus to make it home, he first had to consult the ghost of the dead prophet Tiresias. Now, more on the dead prophet Tiresias in a moment. The critical thing that caused Odysseus to be taken aback at this stage is that the dead prophet Tiresias was, of course, dead. And that meant, of course, that Circe was suggesting to Odysseus that what he needed to do next was take a journey to the underworld. To, as Circe put it, the land, the realm of Persephone and dread Hades. So, quick little recap here in case you have forgotten who dread Hades is. So here's the quick version of the story. Way back in mythological time, there was a god named Cronus. And Cronus was eventually overthrown by three of his sons. Those sons were Zeus, Poseidon, and Hades. 
Now, having overthrown Cronus, Zeus, Poseidon, and Hades uh, decided, well, we need to divide up creation three ways, since there are three of us, and uh, through various casting of lots or drawing of straws, the different versions of the story uh, really don't all add up. But the upshot of the entire thing is that Zeus ended up becoming master of the heavens, Poseidon ended up becoming master of the seas, and Hades became master of the land of the dead. So that's Hades. Hades governs over the land of the dead. And often, sometimes inside of more modern sloppy references, we will equate the word Hades as a location, but actually Hades is the guy that governs over that particular location. Now as to Persephone, well, there are myriad stories about Persephone, but here's the quick and dirty version of it. Persephone is the wife of Hades. Persephone spends half of each calendar year as Hades' wife down there in the land of the dead inside of the underworld. And, and then in the spring, she commutes, if you will, back up to earth. And then she spends all of spring and summer back up on earth. And Persephone, of course, is closely tied to her mother, the goddess Demeter. And between them, well, they represent fertility, life, and that sort of thing. So Persephone makes a symbolic journey every autumn once the crops are in, back down into the land of the dead, and nothing grows on earth for, oh, ballpark six months. And then Persephone says goodbye to Hades, I'll be seeing you in six months, husband, heads back up onto planet earth, and there, well, along with her come crops and vegetation and all those wonderful things for six months. So that's Persephone. Now Odysseus, of course, knew all about, well, the realm of Hades and Persephone, except for the minor little problem of how a human being is supposed to get there. That was a little bit awkward. So we turned to Circe and said, Circe, what pilot will guide us there? For no man has ever by ship arrived at the realm of Hades. And Circe had offered consolation. She said, it's not really a problem, Odysseus. You simply sail away from my island. You put up your mainsail. You won't even have to steer. The boat will take you to the realm of dread Hades and Persephone. So then Circe and Odysseus had said a final fond farewell, if you will, and the boats had set off from Circe's island. They set up the great sail, and the crew, sobbing, tearing their hair, weeping and groaning, prepared for the journey to the land of the dead. Now, it turned out that Circe was actually as good as her word. There was absolutely no need to steer the ship. Uh, the minute they got out of Circe's harbor, well, a northward breeze sprang up, filled the white sail, and the ship veritably sped across the Mediterranean. Now, ladies and gentlemen, the journey to the land of the dead is actually really, really interesting. And one of the fun things that you can do with the journey to the land of the dead, and indeed all of the islands and stop-off locations that Odysseus makes on his journey home, is you can have a great deal of fun attempting to plot the actual locations that Odysseus visits onto a contemporary map of the Mediterranean. And if you want to visit my website, then what you will find in my website is a whole series of these maps. Uh, scholars, geographers, storytellers, since the time that the Odyssey first arrived in the literary canon, have had an absolutely wonderful time trying to speculate on, uh, well, was this the island where they consumed lotus? Or is, is this where the Cyclops might have lived once? Or, or is this the harbor of the last Dragonians? And, and of course, one of the most interesting and contentious conversations inside of all those conversations is precisely where did Odysseus go when he was blown by that heavy north wind to the land of the dead? 
what Circe tells Odysseus and what Odysseus then tells us is that what he has to do to get to the land of the dead is put up that great sail and then allow the north wind to blow until he reaches the edge of the river ocean, which, according to Odysseus, circles the earth. Now, geographically speaking, our best understanding of Bronze Age geography is that the Bronze Age believed that the world was flat, a large chunk of continent, if you will, and in the center of that large chunk of continent, there was a sea, the Mediterranean Sea, uh, Meta, Middle, Terra, Earth, so the middle of the Earth Sea, and that's where most of the adventures and most of Odysseus's travels took place. But since in this particular journey, Odysseus apparently headed north and on to the river ocean, while most contemporary scholars who attempt to chart this voyage seem to believe that Odysseus likely actually headed west, exited through the narrow straits of Gibraltar onto the Atlantic Ocean itself, where then he was blown a good long ways north. And Odysseus's report seems to confirm that as a possible hypothesis. Uh, listen to what Odysseus says about his travel to the land of the dead. We sailed to a land covered in fog, where the sun's rays never penetrate the dense darkness, but always a dismal night envelops those wretched mortals who live there. And folks in contemporary geographic terms, that would suggest that Odysseus sailed out onto the Atlantic Ocean and then headed north, way, way north, before they arrived at the entrance to Hades' land. But whatever the case, and this is just an awful lot of fun and speculation, eventually Odysseus reports the tiny ship and crew arrived and made landfall. So Odysseus hopped off of his ship and then, following Circe's instructions, his next task, of course, was to summon the dead prophet Tiresias in said land of the dead. Now, folks, if you ever need to do this at home, if you ever need to summon a, a dead soul from the land of Hades, well, A, you have to find yourself to the shores of that said land first, but then here's a ritual that you have to follow. First of all, Odysseus dug a pit with his sword. The pit, Odysseus tells us, was the width, length, and depth of a man's forearm. So about a foot square pit ought to do if you're trying to do this at home. Then around the pit, Odysseus tells us, he poured libations to the ghosts and the spirits of the dead. Now, the libations, if you're interested in concocting up a libation formula, consists first of milk and honey, followed by a pouring of wine, and then finally the whole thing is topped off by clear water. And just when you finish that section, what you do then is you sprinkle over some fresh ground barley. Following the libations, then what Odysseus proceeded to do was he proceeded to enter into prayers for the dead. And first of all, Odysseus provided a general prayer addressed to all the residents of dread Hades land. And what he promised is that if he made it back to Ithaca, he would assemble an absolutely glorious sacrifice for the lot of them. And then Odysseus made a precise, specific prayer. For Tiresias, Odysseus promised that if he made it home, he would sacrifice the finest all-black ram in the entire Ithacan flock. Now, that was the pre-ritual, and now we get on to the critical ingredient to get those dead ghosts to actually appear and talk to a living human being. Odysseus then took two live sheep, and holding each sheep up one at a time over the pit, he slit their throats then held them there while they bled out, filling the sacrificial pit with blood.
And ladies and gentlemen, it was really the blood offering that did the trick. Because the very moment that the fresh hot blood began to fill that pit, well, the ghosts of the dead began to swarm in towards Odysseus in the tens of thousands. And we can only really imagine what a horror show this must have been for poor Odysseus. Listen to Odysseus's chilling words of what he saw. Immediately the ghosts came swarming up around me, brides and unmarried youth, old men worn out by suffering, tender young girls with grief still fresh in their hearts, and a host of spirits whose flesh had been mangled by bronze-tipped spears, men killed in the crush of battle, still wearing their blood-stained armor. From all directions they crowded around the pit, with unearthly shrieks that made me pale with terror. Now, ladies and gentlemen, in this grim account, Odysseus lets us in on one of the most horrifying elements of Hades. When you died, at least according to the Homer of the Odyssey, you kept whatever physical shape or form you had managed to die in. So if you were a young child, you wandered endlessly through the land of Hades in the form of a young child. If you were an old, decrepit person, you kept that form for eternity. And if your body had been hacked and slashed and ripped inside a battle or torn a bit by dogs, well, that was a form that you maintained for eternity too. Homer's afterlife was not a very pleasant place. And it was very, very clear to Odysseus what the ghosts were craving. It was the blood in that pit. So Odysseus, following Circe's warnings about that blood, brandished his sword, stood over the pool of blood, and kept the hungry multitudes of dead at bay until he could question the blind prophet Tiresias. But before Tiresias, the blind prophet, could appear, Another ghost arrived, seeming to be somewhat more corporeal than the other ghosts in the realm of Hades. And Odysseus, in a moment, first of, of shock and then fear, but then absolute curiosity, recognized that particular ghost. It was actually a member of Odysseus' own crew. The last time that Odysseus had seen this particular guy had just been, Odysseus seemed to try to remember, but just a day or two earlier on Circe's island. And, and, and now here he was. Now, the name of the deceased crew member was a guy named Elpenor. And ladies and gentlemen, I'll be charitable, but if there was ever an expendable cast member, then Elpenor was just such a guy. I'll allow Odysseus's words to provide Elpenor's rather limited resume. Elpenor was the youngest of my crew and not overly well endowed with good sense. So Odysseus in some shock at seeing Elpenor, it turned to him and, well, asked the obvious question. Elpenor, how did you come to this land of darkness? You got here more quickly by foot than, well, I did by ship. And poor, luckless, not overly endowed with good sense, Elpenor replied. Some evil power brought me to my undoing, Odysseus. Well, that and... Uh, uh, too much wine. And then poor, luckless, and entirely irrelevant Elpenor told his poor, luckless, 
entirely irrelevant story. Apparently, folks, the night before the crew were due to depart from Circe's Island and continue their journey, well, they had decided to have a final all-night bender, if you will, and El Painor had got a little bit too deeply into the wine and then drunkenly decided that the most appropriate place to sleep it off for the night was not on the ground, but actually up on the roof of Circe's cottage. But then in the morning, El Painor, sleeping in, badly, badly, badly hung over, had suddenly heard the sounds of the crew preparing to depart, uh, uh, the great sail being put up in the ship and the oars being put in the locks, and, and El Painor, in a panic that he was about to miss his place on deck, well, El Painor had leapt up and gone rushing towards the boat, uh, forgetting, unfortunately, that El Painor was still on the roof of Circe's cottage. Well, El Painor had crashed off of the roof, broken his neck, and, well, the body of El Painor was now lying dead and unburied in the thick brush back of Circe's cottage. But the saddest thing of all, of course, about El Painor was not really his death. The saddest thing is that Odysseus and not a single other member on that boat as they pulled out of Circe's harbor had even noticed that poor El Painor was missing. They had spent 10 years on the beaches of Troy with this guy, and then, of course, another three years almost now with him on Circe's Island and their other adventures, and, well, they didn't even notice that he was missing on the day they sailed away. And don't we all know at least one El Painor in our own lives? Some poor, luckless but lovable, everyman dumb shit. And we don't usually even truly notice that guy or appreciate how much we really like him until he's gone. And I suspect maybe that that's why Homer, the master storyteller, chose to start off Odysseus's epic and heroic journey to the land of the underworld with not Tiresias, a famous prophet, or some of the other famous people we're going to meet, but instead with an eminently forgettable and practically forgotten dumb shit named El Painor. Possibly Homer inserted El Painor into the plot as a stand-in for the billions of dead shades flitting about in the afterlife that Odysseus is now going to visit. Homer reminds us that most of the occupants of the land of Grim Hades are every man El Painors. So, Odysseus turned to El Painor, asking if there was any form of consolation available to him, and El Painor begged Odysseus for a proper burial. I'll quote El Painor's words, just so he's not completely forgotten from history. Build a funeral cairn for me, down by the seaside, so that for generations to come, people may know the story of me, El Painor, a man who's Luck ran out. And Odysseus, to his credit, generously replied, My poor friend, I will make sure that this is accomplished. And then El Painor faded away. And the shade, the ghost of the famous dead prophet Tiresias arrived. Now, folks, if the name Tiresias sounds at all familiar to you, this guy has a long resume inside of Greek mythology, inside of Greek art, literature, theatrical productions. 
he was a prophet from the land of Thebes, and if he sounds familiar, he shows up inside of Sophocles' masterpiece, Oedipus the King, and in countless other stories. So the shade of Tiresias stepped forward, and the shade of Tiresias spoke ever so faintly to Odysseus. Royal son of Laredes, Odysseus, master of exploits, man of pain, what brings you here? forsaking the light of day to see this joyous kingdom of the dead? Stand back from the pit, so I can drink the blood and tell you the truth. So Odysseus stepped back from the pit, and Tiresias drank eagerly of the blood, and then began to prophesy the future. Now, ladies and gentlemen, absolutely no other ghost inside of the land of the dead, even with the assistance of blood, had any possible hope of telling the future. All that the blood offering managed to do was to allow the dead to briefly communicate about the past and about the present with any living visitors. But Tiresias, when he had been alive and before he had become a prophet, had been gifted with the gift of prophecy by none other than Zeus, king of the gods himself. And the gifting of the prophecy apparently had been so generously given by Zeus that it turned out to transcend even death. So here's the story. So way back when Tiresias was alive and way back before Tiresias had the gift of prophecy, he had somehow managed to anger an Olympian deity and as his punishment, the Olympian deity had transformed Tiresias from a human man into a human woman. And then for the next seven years of his adult life, Tiresias inhabited the body of a human female. Well, after that seven years, uh, another deity took pity on Tiresias and transformed him back into a human male again. And then, well, sometime after that, the story goes, Zeus, king of the gods, master of the thunderbolt, got into another one of his bitter arguments with his often estranged wife, Hera, queen of the gods. And the particular argument had focused on which gender gets more pleasure from the act of sex. The man or the woman? Now, folks, this was a particularly loaded and dicey conversation for Zeus and Hera to get themselves engaged in, given the always tumultuous nature of that couple's bedroom relationship. And if you don't know the backstory, I'll just summarize it now. Zeus, it appears, enjoyed the bedroom pleasures of any and all females in creation more than he enjoyed the fleeting pleasures of time in bed with his wife Hera. So, this debate between Zeus and his wife, do men or women get more pleasure in the act of sex, was much, much more than a simple intellectual exercise. Because Hera, it appears, had been getting very little pleasure at all from the master of the wayward thunderbolt. So, how does this have anything to do with Tiresias? Well, the obvious way. Tiresias was the only human being in existence who had spent some of his adult life as a man and then seven years of his adult life as a woman. So Zeus and Hera realized, well, if we need somebody to answer the question, all we have to really do is go to a person who has some experiential and empirical evidence on both sides of the argument. So they asked Tiresias, Who's getting more fun in the sack, Tiresias, the boys or the girls? And Tiresias had answered without equivocation, Allow me to quote, Of ten parts of pleasure, the man enjoys only one. In other words, folks, 
The girls are getting 90% of the fun. Well, that threw Hera into such a rage. Bad enough that she lost the argument, but I think Hera likely suddenly realized that due to her husband's rather negligent charms, she was missing out on what 90% of her sisters were getting. And Hera, of course, in her typical deific fashion when she got upset, directed her wrath not at her husband, but on the poor human being who had simply told her the truth. Hera blinded Tiresias. But sometime afterwards, when Hera had cooled down, Zeus, feeling rather badly for the poor man, had compensated Tiresias for his physical blindness by giving him the gift of future sight or prophecy. So now, ladies and gentlemen, Tiresias is dead, but that's how he came about the ability to prophecy the future, even in the land of the dead. And here's what Tiresias told Odysseus. You seek a happy return, Odysseus, but one god will make it bitter for you. Poseidon, who is furious that you blinded his son. And yet, despite many hardships, you and your men may still reach home if... And the if went on for a very long time, but the gist of the if was that Tiresias warned Odysseus about a particular island that they were going to encounter on their way home. And on that island, Tiresias explained, there were cattle, cattle sacred to the sun god Helios. Apparently, they were grazing in that island in lush pastures, and Tiresias was pretty unequivocal on what the men were supposed to do when they saw those cattle. Do not harm those cattle. If you hurt them, then I predict the destruction of your ship and your comrades. And even if you yourself should escape Odysseus, it will be a long time before you reach home. And when you do arrive home, you will be in a wretched state, on a foreign ship, all alone, only to find your house in disorder and filled with arrogant men who devour your goods and attempt to win the hand of your wife, as if you were dead. And folks, of course, aside from Tiresias's very specific cattle of the sun god warning, well, the prophecy of Tiresias echoed nearly word for word the earlier curse of the Cyclops Polythemus. In fact, the only new information that Tiresias provided, though it would have been disturbing and bracing information for Odysseus, was the prophecy about a household full of men courting your wife because they think that you are dead, Odysseus. And then Tiresias began to fade, and as Odysseus looked at the other bodies congregating around the pool of blood, he suddenly recognized his own mother, a woman named Anticlea, and she had been very much alive when Odysseus had set sail for Troy nearly 13 years earlier. Well, Odysseus motioned to her, and she came close, but, but to Odysseus's despair and anguish, she seemed unable to speak. Uh, she, she was so faint, so pale, so faded, and, and Odysseus, in a panic, turned to Tiresias and, and asked the question. He said, what can I do, my lord, to, to make her see me and recognize who I am? To which Tiresias had provided, one rule there is. Any one of the ghosts you let approach and drink the blood will speak truth to you. Anyone you refuse the blood will turn and fade away. And so Odysseus motioned to his mother 
She came close, and she drank deeply of the dark blood in the pit. And then Anticlea looked up and recognized her son, her own shining boy, her Odysseus. Well, Odysseus briefly explained why he had not yet made it home from Troy, and that he was here now in the land of Hades seeking necessary knowledge to make that homecoming possible. But then, of course, Odysseus questioned his mother. Tell me of my father. Tell me of my son, who I left behind. And then, of course, Odysseus posed the most desperate question. Please, tell me about my wife, her turn of mind, her thoughts. Still standing fast beside our son? Still guarding our estates? Secure as ever now? And, of course, Odysseus's question is almost a plea from our wayward, wandering hero. Somehow it seems that seeing his mother in the land of the dead had reawakened Odysseus to what the purpose of his homecoming really was. And that long, fun-filled year in Circe's bed was now being thrown into a very sharp relief as Odysseus realized that there were consequences of having been away that long and that his wife Penelope, his son Telemachus, might be actually struggling against temptations and monsters even greater than the ones that Odysseus was encountering on his journey home. And just as a sidebar for you and I listening into the story and watching this scene, Odysseus had every reason to worry. He'd been gone for 13 years, and all the other heroes from Troy had long ago made it home, and that meant that the citizens of Ithaca could only reasonably assume that their king, the king of Ithaca, Odysseus, had somehow died of misfortune in a storm on the way home. And ladies and gentlemen, I need not remind you that this was a Bronze Age society, and a Bronze Age patriarchal society had absolutely no room in it for a widowed queen. And so the pressure's on Penelope to accept that her husband Odysseus was dead and to remarry. Well, those pressures would have been unrelenting as the years went by, and Odysseus, of course, a Bronze Age patriarchal warlord himself, would not have needed to imagine too hard the struggles that Penelope would be facing. Odysseus finally posed the question as bluntly as he could to his mother, Anticlea. Has she married some other man already? And Anticlea, mum, offered good and bad news. She's still waiting in your halls, the poor woman, suffering so, her life an endless hardship, wasting away the nights, weeping away the days. Telemachus, he still holds your great estates in peace. No one has taken over your royal rights. Not yet. But as to your father, he lies nursing his sorrow, feebler each year, still mourning over your death. And it's telling that the former king of Ithaca, Odysseus's dad, is now quite convinced that his own son has died, which of course just adds to the rights of the suitors to be looking for who Penelope's replacement husband is going to be. And of course, then, Odysseus couldn't help but ask. He asked his mother the question about how she had died. It was my longing for you, my shining Odysseus. You and your quickness, 
you and your gentle ways. That longing stole away my sweet life. Well, poor Odysseus, he was quite understandably overcome. Breaking down, he desperately reached out, wanting to embrace, wanting to hold his mother even here in the land of the dead. But of course, in the land of the dead, even souls animated by blood still did not have full corporeal form. Odysseus reached out to embrace his mother, but no matter how hard he tried, he simply could not. Three times I rushed toward her, desperate to hold her. Three times she fluttered through my fingers, sifting away like a shadow, dissolving like a dream. And each time the grief cut to my heart. I cried out to her, Mother, why not wait for me? How I long to hold you. Or are you just some phantom sent as a mockery? to load even more sorrow onto me. And Odysseus's mother, drifting away for the final time, replied, My son, my dear son, this is no deception. This is just the way of mortals when we die. Sinews no longer bind the flesh and bone together. The fire in all its fury burns the body down to ashes once life slips from the white bones. And then the spirit, the spirit, rustling, flitters away like a dream. And then Odysseus' mother was gone. And now, folks, this must have been an absolutely devastating experience for poor Odysseus. But before he even had time to compose himself, another shade appeared. It was the ghost of Agamemnon, the king of kings, the leader of Operation Trojan Storm. And, of course, this was a man who Odysseus knew very, very well. Ladies and gentlemen, fate and deadly destiny had thrown Odysseus and Agamemnon together. And for the last decade of both of their lives... Well, their careers, their adventures had all been inextricably linked. And, well, before the war began, Odysseus had helped orchestrate Operation Trojan Storm and pull all the strings of it together. And then once they had landed on the beaches of Troy, Odysseus had never, ever been very far from the commander-in-chief's side. Now, what's important for us to understand, as Odysseus meets Agamemnon here in the Land of the Dead is that when Odysseus last saw Agamemnon, Agamemnon had been very, very much alive. He was the conquering hero of Troy. His ships were loaded heavy with plunder. He was sailing home to his kingdom of Mycenae and to his dear wife, Clytemnestra. But now, here, inexplicably, he was dead, another occupant in the kingdom of Hades. And it's really hard for us to know who is more surprised by the encounter. Odysseus to see Agamemnon dead, or Agamemnon to see Odysseus alive, but somehow improbably in the land of the dead. Well, the two comrades reached out to embrace each other, but of course they could not. Agamemnon was a ghost, a pale shadow with no physical substance at all. But Odysseus motioned to the pit of sacrificial blood. Agamemnon drank deeply of that blood, 
And then the two former comrades in arms started to talk. And the first question, of course, was from Odysseus, asking Agamemnon, well, how did you die? Did you drown on your way home, Agamemnon, in a deadly storm? Or were you killed by enemies when you attempted to raid their cattle and steal their women? And it's, of course, very telling, ladies and gentlemen, that these were the instant two immediate causes of death that came to Odysseus's mind. Because back in the Bronze Age of this story, well, next to old age, if you were a pirate from the Greek world culture, while drowning in the high seas, or being killed while pirating in the high seas, were the two most likely ways for a man to end his life. But, well, Agamemnon's answer was not at all what Odysseus had expected. Agamemnon went on to recount the absolutely most horrific of tales. Apparently, during Agamemnon's decades-long absence from his wife Clytemnestra, well, Clytemnestra had taken a lover. And then, on the very day that Agamemnon had returned from Troy, that lover, with Clytemnestra's help, had taken Agamemnon by surprise and hacked him to death with an axe. And that is how Agamemnon, king of kings, had arrived in the land of dread Hades. And now, ladies and gentlemen, having drunk deeply from the pit of sacrificial blood, Agamemnon was ready to unleash all of his rage and his venom against his adulterous, murderous wife, Clytemnestra. I lay dying, Odysseus, stuck with a sword, pounding the ground with my hands. And that goddamned whore, she turned her back on me even though I was dying. She didn't have the heart to pull down my eyelids or close my mouth. Oh, Odysseus, there is nothing on this earth more abominable than a woman. No crime so repulsive as a woman murdering her own husband. And, ladies and gentlemen, then Agamemnon, on quite the roll, went on and on with a story that for Odysseus, now absent from his wife, Penelope, for nearly 12 years, a story that Odysseus must have found particularly bracing and disconcerting. I tell you, Odysseus, I had no suspicions about my wife. I even thought that my arrival would be a joy to my children and to my household. But that evil slut brought disgrace on herself and on all women forever. So, I warn you, Odysseus, never trust any woman. Not even your wife. I, well, not that your wife is ever likely to kill you. Penelope is far too loyal and wise to do something like that. And, ladies and gentlemen, as the reanimating blood was beginning to run out, and as the once mighty Agamemnon slowly started to fade away, he issued one final dire and prophetic warning. But I tell you this, Odysseus, bear it in mind. You must, when you reach your homeland, Steer your ship into the port in secret, never out in the open. 
the time for trusting women is gone forever. And then, ladies and gentlemen, Agamemnon too was gone forever, back into the eternal darkness and shade. And from our perspective, well, from Odysseus's perspective, imagine what's just happened here. He's now been given two completely different possible accounts of what might be happening back on his own island kingdom of Ithaca. His mother, of course, has reported that Penelope, though heartsick and worn out with grief, is still faithful, and so far at least, that Ithaca has not fallen into another man's hands or Penelope fallen into another man's bed. But then, of course, there is Agamemnon's much more grim and bitter thesis that all women are duplicitous, deceptive whores who cannot be trusted to remain faithful to their absentee husbands. Now, folks, I will refrain from comment now and instead save for the post-story commentary my own observation on Agamemnon's misogyny and his, well, somewhat less than nuanced account of events. And instead, let's move on to Odysseus's next and absolutely most famous encounter in the land of the dead. As Agamemnon faded into the eternal dark, the ghost of Achilles arrived. Now, unlike the ghost of Agamemnon, who took Odysseus completely by surprise, the arrival of the ghost of Achilles would have been no surprise at all to Odysseus, uh, because Odysseus had been there on the plains of Troy on the day when the mighty hero Achilles had died, and Odysseus, of course, had participated in the funeral games of Achilles. But for the ghost of Achilles? Well, he was more than just a wee little bit shocked to see Odysseus, uh, particularly to see Odysseus not dead, but there in the land of Hades, very, very much alive. Resourceful Odysseus, well, this is the boldest exploit you have ever devised. How did you dare make your way down here to Hades? And folks, I cannot help but wish that Odysseus had, in response to Achilles' question, launched into yet another one of his stretchers with a reply something like this. Well, I'm absolutely delighted that you ask, Achilles. Uh, so, to smuggle myself into the realm of dread Hades, I first considered building a large wooden horse. Uh, but then I modified my plan and decided instead to construct a giant wooden boat. Uh, but then I modified my plan and, well, ladies and gentlemen, I think you get the idea. It could have been an awful lot of fun. And if this were not the land of the dead, then there's no doubt in my mind that the two great heroes would have loved nothing better than to sit down with a wineskin of good red and delight in such storytelling and in catching up on old times. But sadly, I fear, the context for all such pleasantries here in the land of dread Hades is completely wrong. Because what we are witnessing now is not a serendipitous, joyous reunion of two former brothers-in-arms. We have to remember, Achilles is dead. And it is only the blood in Odysseus's sacrificial pit which is holding together the flitting, ethereal essence of the once mighty hero into some pale, corporeal form that Odysseus can talk to. And I imagine that for Odysseus, 
this must have been the most shattering visit in the land of the dead of all. Seeing his mother, well, that had been heartbreaking. Seeing Agamemnon, of course, well, that would have been more than a little unsettling. But somehow, for Odysseus, it must have seemed impossible that Achilles, the towering Achilles, the Achilles who had shone like a god over all other mortal men, was, well, now this pitiful shade of a thing. And here, in the land of Hades, Odysseus was now confronted with the shattering, sickening truth. In the end, even the mighty Achilles was no better off than all the rest of we poor Elpenors. Achilles was just a shade, flitting about like a bat in a cave, on a dark, endless, and eternal plain. So what do you say to just such a thing, when your pool of sacrificial blood temporarily reanimates it and provides that thing with a brief reminder of its former self and its former glory? And here, ladies and gentlemen, Odysseus, usually the most reliable of wordsmiths, struggled for his words, before blurting out a clumsy hash of pointless flattery and hallmark-worthy platitude. But you, Achilles, no man on earth has ever been more blessed than you are, nor ever will be. Before, when you were alive, we honored you equally with the immortal gods. And down here, well, you are a great prince among the dead. Therefore, you should not be at all sad about dying, Achilles. But the shade of Achilles was having absolutely none of Odysseus's weak attempts at flattery and consolation. Don't try to smooth-talk me into accepting death, Odysseus. By God, I'd rather slave on earth for another man. Some dirt-poor tenant-farmer who scrapes to keep alive than to rule down here over all of the breathless dead. And I need not remind you folks that this is Achilles speaking. The very same Achilles who from birth was given the choice of two possible destinies, to live a glorious, heroic, and shining life on earth, but then to die very young, or to live an anonymous, pedestrian life on earth and then die peacefully, but unknown in old age. And Achilles, live Achilles, had ultimately chosen the former. But now here we were in the land of the dead. And dead Achilles? Well, now dead Achilles was longing for nothing more than to be the slave of a slave, but still alive on earth. And, of course, for Odysseus, another hero in his own right, just like Achilles, who was raised in the very same culture of Achilles that valued temporal chaos and glory above all other things. Well, to hear Achilles make that claim, it must have been more than a little bit unsettling. Because if Achilles' claim was, well, to be taken at its face value, that claim contained in it a repudiation of the entire heroic worldview. Life on earth as a slave? 
preferable to a heroic, glorious death? What strange new way of thinking was this? But then, almost immediately, Achilles, who had been a bundle of contradictions when he was alive, proved to be equally mercurial in death, too. Achilles changed the conversation's direction. He turned and he asked Odysseus for a report on his son, a boy named Neoptolemus, who had not been old enough to join the Greek war against Troy until after his father Achilles was long dead. And ladies and gentlemen, Odysseus, seeing an opportunity to change the conversation to something much more comfortable than existential questions on the ultimate meaning of life here in the land of the dead, Odysseus positively heaped on the hyperbole and, well, mostly fiction, about the glorious, heroic, and honorable deeds of Achilles' young son, the mighty warlord Neoptolemus. And Achilles absolutely glowed in paternal delight, forgetting, at least momentarily, that his son was now on the identical career track, a glorious and therefore likely short life of a hero, that he, father, had just seconds earlier renounced as entirely meaningless. But for a moment at least, the heroic Achilles was back, at least until the blood from the sacrificial pit wore off. And then off he went, Odysseus tells us, the ghost of swift-footed Achilles, loping with long strides across the fields of the dead, triumphant in all that I had told him about his son, his gallant, glorious son. Well, after Achilles departed, Odysseus caught sight of one more final ghost. There in the darkness stood Ajax, bulwark of the Greeks, and next to Achilles himself, the absolutely greatest and most gifted of the Greek fighters at Troy. And now, folks, I will remind you, in case you have forgotten, that back on the plains of Troy, the lifelong friendship between Ajax and Odysseus had been badly damaged in a silly dispute over which of the two heroes should be declared the greatest of the Greeks. Well, Ajax had lost that contest, and Ajax, distraught and dishonored, he was without doubt the better soldier, well, Ajax had killed himself in shame. But now here, in the land of Hades, Odysseus attempted to mend the broken fence. I wish I'd never won. The prize wasn't worth it, since it brought such a noble warrior down to his grave. A man who, in stature and feats of war, surpassed all other Greeks except Achilles. So Odysseus, seeing the shade of Ajax, called out to that shade and motioned to the pit of blood. But the ghost of Ajax was having none of it. He looked up, took note of his long-lost estranged friend. Then Ajax turned away from the blood in the pit and slipped back into the eternal darkness. But then, folks, to Odysseus's horror, the multitude of the ghosts of the dead, in the tens of thousands, 
sensing perhaps that the blood in the sacrificial pit was nearly gone and hungry, thirsty for at least a taste of that reanimating blood. They all closed in towards Odysseus, and, and our hero, pale with terror, absolutely unhinged by all that had transpired in the land of dread Hades. Odysseus ran to his ship, sprinted back, and, rowing hard, escaped the land of the dead, across the river ocean, and brought his tiny ship and crew back into the land of the living. And that, of course, is where we will leave this particularly unsettling episode of Odyssey the Podcast. With Odysseus, his one ship, and his small remaining crew, still lost, still cursed, and now more desperately, more urgently than ever, in need of a quick homecoming. So, welcome to the post-story commentary. Now, ladies and gentlemen, when I sat down to record this particular episode of Odyssey the Podcast, I faced a little bit of what you might call a storyteller's dilemma. Do I assume that my listeners are coming to Odyssey the Podcast as a freestanding story with absolutely no prior knowledge of Trojan War the Podcast? Or alternately, do I assume that my listeners are veterans of the 25 hours of Trojan War the Podcast and so are now experiencing, well, Odyssey the Podcast as a seamless continuation of a story whose plot and characters they already know very well. So here is the dilemma. If you are a reader or a listener coming to Homer's Odyssey as a freestanding story, so you have absolutely no prior knowledge of the Trojan War epic cycle, then when you met Agamemnon for the very first time in the Land of the Dead, no doubt your first impression was of an attractive, honorable, all-round good guy man. Now, possibly you would have found Agamemnon a little wee bit too bitter or misogynistic for your 21st century tastes, but you would have given the man some slack. He had, after all, been recently hacked to death with an axe by his faithless, murderous wife. And if you were having any difficulty at all in forming your opinion on how you were expected to feel about Agamemnon, well, you would have noticed that Odysseus, the hero of our story, thinks that Agamemnon is an all-round, first-class kind of guy. And actually, throughout the entire Odyssey, and I've had to be very careful about plot spoilers in the way that I'm telling the story, but over and over again, ladies and gentlemen, the story of Agamemnon, badly wronged by his evil wife, is told by every attractive character inside of Homer's Odyssey, including a couple of Olympian gods. But, if, on the other hand, you arrived at Homer's Odyssey as a continuation of the previous Trojan War epic story arc. Then, when you met Agamemnon in the Land of the Dead, you already knew him quite well. And most likely, folks, you took absolutely great delight in seeing that miserable bastard finally, finally dead. So quite obviously, I had to make a decision as your storyteller. When I got you to the Land of the Dead, and when Odysseus encountered Agamemnon, what was my obligation as your tour guide? 
was my obligation to tell you Homer's Odyssey straight up and present Agamemnon as a good guy? Or, alternately, was my obligation to fill you in on the unspoken gossip and tell you instead some of the less than savory things that we insiders already know about Greece's King of Kings? Now, I decided on the former. But here, in the post-story commentary, I've decided that what I'm going to do is fill all of you newbies in on what we veterans of Trojan War the Podcast already know. And then, once we're all equipped with the very same Agamemnon backstory knowledge, I'll spend the balance of the post-story commentary exploring a really interesting question. Why is the Agamemnon of Homer's Odyssey presented as, well, so much more attractive than is the Agamemnon presented in Homer's Iliad? and in all of the other stories that comprise the Trojan War epic cycle. So that's the game plan, and for starters, let's take a look at Agamemnon, King of Kings and the leader of Operation Trojan Storm, as he appears in Homer's Odyssey. Now Odysseus meets Agamemnon's ghost and immediately asks him, How did you die, Agamemnon? And the ghost of Agamemnon wastes absolutely no time telling Odysseus the story of his, quote, evil slut and goddamned whore, Clytemnestra, and of her lover, a guy named Aegisthus. We learn inside of the Odyssey that Clytemnestra and Aegisthus together plotted the brutal murder of totally unsuspecting Agamemnon. In fact, listen to the ghost of Agamemnon's words. I had no suspicions about her. I even thought that my arrival would be a joy to my children and to my household. And ladies and gentlemen, Odysseus wholeheartedly supports Agamemnon's complaint. Listen to what Odysseus says in reply. Horrible. From the very beginning, Zeus has hated the family of Atreus and harmed that family through the crimes of women. And so, folks... If we arrive at Homer's Odyssey with absolutely no prior backstory knowledge, then it does appear that Agamemnon is the wronged party, and even if his anger is steeped in a little bit too much bile for our tastes, the anger, we agree, is justified. Okay, so that is, well, that's Agamemnon as he appears directly inside of Homer's Odyssey. But now, just for fun, let us add the backstory details to Odysseus' encounter with Agamemnon in the Land of the Dead. Let's add the stories about Agamemnon that do not appear in Homer's Odyssey, but which veterans of Trojan War, the podcast, or Trojan War, the epic story arc, already know very well when we listen to Agamemnon tell his tale of woe. And if you're curious and you want the full, troubling, and horrifyingly hour-long version of the backstory I'm about to share with you, you'll find it in episode number 9 of Trojan War, the podcast. But here, very quickly, is the condensed story version. Prior to departing for Troy, Agamemnon made a decision to ritually sacrifice his own daughter, a child named Iphigenia in exchange for favorable sailing winds for the thousand ships of Agamemnon's conquering Greek fleet. Now, there was a problem. Once Agamemnon decided on his, I think I will murder my daughter plan, 
he faced a bit of a dilemma. He and his invasion fleet were currently lodged at a seaside port called Aulis. But his daughter, who he wanted to sacrifice, young Ephegenia, well, she was back home in Mycenae with her mum, Clytemnestra. And Agamemnon quite rightly assumed that, well, Clytemnestra might not have really been too excited about her husband's plan to murder their own daughter. So, Agamemnon crafted an elaborate and detailed con. Here's what he did. He sent a message to his wife, announcing that he, the world's best dad, had managed to arrange a favorable wedding match for their daughter, Iphigenia. So I need you to prepare Iphigenia for the wedding, and then send her here to me at the port of Aulis, so that we can complete the wedding ceremony before the fleet sails to Troy. Now, folks, in Agamemnon's cunningly crafted lie, he added some additional bait, if you will, to ensure that both mother and daughter came eagerly to the sacrifice. He informed the both of them that he, dad of the year, had arranged that Ephegenia be married to that most glorious of Greek-eligible bachelors, the mighty warlord Achilles. Well, both mother and daughter fell for the lie. In fact, Ephegenia was over the moon at the prospects. So both of them eagerly reported to the Portadolis for what they thought was going to be a wedding. And then both were more than a little surprised when Agamemnon, instead of a wedding, stuck a dagger into his poor daughter's heart. And then he sailed off to Troy, where he spent the next ten years. And during those ten years, Clytemnestra, wife, mother, well, Clytemnestra plotted revenge against her monster of a husband. And in that context, ladies and gentlemen, Agamemnon's words to Odysseus when he speaks to Odysseus in the land of the dead, well, those words now seem either clueless or incredibly disingenuous. Recall what Agamemnon says. I thought that my arrival home would be a joy to my children and to my household. Oh, really, Agamemnon? A joy to your remaining children and to your wife? That is really what you thought, Agamemnon? And ladies and gentlemen, there are even more, well, hidden layers and nuance to Agamemnon and Odysseus's conversation in the land of the dead. Because that cunningly crafted lie about the fake wedding of Iphigenia to the mighty hero Achilles, that lie that brought mother and daughter eagerly to the beach at Aulis, well, that lie, of course, was not crafted by Agamemnon, but by our boy Odysseus himself. Agamemnon wasn't nearly bright enough to concoct such a convincing scheme. But Odysseus, Polytropus man, certainly was. Now, ladies and gentlemen, none of these backstories, none of these explanations for events, none of these different perspectives on events, and none of this damning evidence against Agamemnon or even Odysseus, well, none of it appears inside of Homer's Odyssey, of course. Rather, inside of Homer's Odyssey... Odysseus, and indeed everybody else, agrees that Agamemnon is noble, virtuous, and an entirely blameless man. And everybody also agrees that he was betrayed by his deceitful whore of a wife, Clytemnestra, and her absolutely evil lover, Aegisthus. So the question is, 
why then the two quite different Agamemnons? Why the good guy Agamemnon of Homer's Odyssey and, and then the considerably less good guy Agamemnon of the balance of the Trojan War epic cycle? And the first reason, of course, is that, well, we are talking about two quite different Homers. Remember, folks, that the Homer who wrote Iliad is not, according to the vast majority of scholarly opinion, the same Homer as the Homer or Homers who wrote the Odyssey. And, of course, if you know Iliad Homer, then you know that that Homer was more than happy to offer us a nuanced Agamemnon, a leader who, though he was the glorious leader of the Greek Operation Trojan Storm, was also vain, arrogant, and much of the time, an egregiously flawed human being. But the Homer, or Homers, of Odyssey, well, that Homer chose to whitewash Agamemnon's resume, down to that of a nearly stock character good guy. And the Odysseus, who shows up in Homer's Odyssey, well, that Odysseus seems to have conveniently forgotten that in the Iliad, Agamemnon was making messes everywhere, and much of the time, it was our Polytropus hero Odysseus who was left attempting to clean up those messes. But there is another even greater or more compelling explanation for the two Agamemnon's problem, and it is an explanation that would have equally confronted our two Homers. Ladies and gentlemen, the absolutely most damning Agamemnon story, the story of his brutal sacrificial murder of his own child, well, that story appears to be unknown to either of our two Homers, for the very basic reason that the Ephedjanias story hadn't yet been created. In fact, the Ephedjanias story does not appear to show up inside of the literary canon until two to three hundred years after both the Iliad and the Odyssey have been published. In fact, folks, our very first written account of the Ephedjanias story and our first explanation that Clytemnestra murdered her husband as a revenge killing for the daughter, well, that story appears in a play by Aeschylus, a play called Agamemnon, written in 458 BCE. And as to all those details of the plot of how Agamemnon, following Odysseus's instructions, managed to con his wife into arriving at the beach for a wedding, well, that story doesn't show up inside of world literature until it's put into a play written by Euripides in 407. BCE. Now, some of you astute listeners will quite rightly point out that most of the stories inside of the Trojan War epic story arc existed in the oral tradition for centuries before they ever got written down. So at this stage, you're likely saying, well, Jeff, isn't there a possibility that Homer had heard these stories centuries before Aeschylus or Euripides bothered to turn them into plays? And it's really good thinking. But again, when you go back to the overwhelming scholarly opinion on this, most scholars argue no. They argue that the Ephedjanias story simply did not exist until centuries after the Iliad and the Odyssey were published. And if that is the case then, Odysseus, in the land of dread Hades, when he enthusiastically and unreservedly accepts Agamemnon's version of events, well, Odysseus is not being duplicitous or even overly gracious or delicate with the facts. Because from Odysseus's perspective, 
Agamemnon had no Iphigenia blood on his hands. In fact, from Odysseus's perspective, Odysseus would have had no idea at all who Iphigenia even was. And finally, ladies and gentlemen, well, there is one ultimate reason why the Agamemnon of Homer's Odyssey is portrayed in such a ridiculously flattering light, and why every character in Homer's Odyssey agrees that Agamemnon is an entirely innocent and good man, badly, egregiously wronged by a faithless and duplicitous wife. And that reason is simple. Folks, Odyssey Agamemnon is not really a character. Rather, Odyssey Agamemnon is the Odyssey's chorus, if you will. The Agamemnon story, repeated over and over and over again throughout the Odyssey, is simply there as a warning to Odysseus, and equally to we listeners, of the very real dangers of arriving home too late from a quest. Now, you will recall that some post-story commentaries earlier, I addressed how in all of the very best quest stories, there has to be some tick, tick, tick urgency to the hero making it home and to making it home in a hurry. And that there is always some dire consequence if the hero does not make it home on time. So with that in mind, remember, ladies and gentlemen, that the Odysseus and Hades episode, which I just told you, that episode shows up in Homer's Odyssey immediately following our boy Odysseus's year-long and quite voluntary sex vacation on Circe's island. So, when Odysseus then travels from Circe's island to the land of grim Hades, and hears firsthand from Agamemnon what his wife did to him when he finally made it back home. Well, Agamemnon's story is intended by Homer as a none-too-subtle reminder to Odysseus, and to we listeners, of course, that extended delays in homecoming are fraught with dire consequence. Penelope is still hanging in and remaining faithful. Odysseus's mum reports that. But Penelope is increasingly pressed by eager suitors who think Odysseus is dead. Tiresias warns that. And all wives? Well, all wives are ultimately faithless, duplicitous whores. Agamemnon tells us that. So, Odysseus, who so far in this quest has demonstrated really no sense of urgency at all in getting home on time, well, Odysseus, following his journey to the land of the dead, had better kick his traveler's ass into high gear now, if he hopes to avoid Agamemnon's terrible fate. Because the Odyssey and every quest story makes it pretty clear. The most dangerous monsters and the most seductive temptations are not out on the high seas with Odysseus, but rather waiting back on Odysseus's island kingdom of Ithaca, where they were patiently plotting, biding their time, and marshalling their evil forces. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is where we will wrap things up for now. 
So when we next meet Odysseus in episode number six of Odyssey the Podcast, we will learn if our Polytropus boy has learned anything valuable at all or gained any useful insights from his just-completed journey to the land of the dead. So have yourselves awesome days. I will talk to you again soon. Bye for now.